0: You're listening
1: to The Versailles Podcast. My name's Christian Lorenzen, editor-at-large for the LRB. I'm here with veteran investigative journalist Seymour Hirsch, talking about his new book with Verso, The Killing of Osama bin Laden. So, Sai, you work in a form you call counter-narrative. How would you define that?
0: Let's first make it clear. You are my editor for all the yes. pieces that were published in the London Review that are collected in this. So uh, you have a stake in being very nice to me. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. It's true. Uh, uh, no, it's simply that. Uh, uh, I, I sometimes think I should say counter truth because a narrative can be a fictional narrative. It's a weaker word. But there is, there is a truth and there's also another truth. There's a truth that the president did go in and authorize the American SEALs, to kid Osama bin Laden, and they did kill him. That is a truth. Everything else after that, uh, how they played it, how they manipulated it, how they used it, how they managed to try to sell it as this is a turning point in the war on terror, doesn't pass the smell test from day one. So I knew that. And so um, uh, it's it's all about critical thinking Mm. and what, what sometimes we're supposed to learn in school. Which is, you know, theoretically, I'm, I'm lucky I went to the University of Chicago where uh, in the 50s where we had, um, we had courses called Natural Sciences 1, 2, 3, and 4, Social Sciences 1, 2, 3, and 4, Humanities 1, 2, 3, and 4. You read only the original works. And so you didn't have to look at a professor's—you didn't have to parrot what a professor, you know, handing—assigning uh, his own book to the students. And so that you have to parrot what he says. You could actually go and do a riff. On what you wanted. So I think that helped me begin to think that the way to get a feel in Washington is actually read before you write, and I mean that on a mega scale. Really read the papers, read some of the position papers. I'm somebody who read when the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, after the, the shoot-down of, uh, after we destroyed Baghdad in 1991 in the first Gulf War. If you remember, we had a UN inspection team process, and the uh, the UN inspection team was called UNSRA, not UN whatever, and it was headed by a Swede named um, uh, Ikaeus. And every four, every three months, they put out a report. And I used to, at the minimum, skim read it pretty carefully. And sometimes certainly sections read. So I had years of reading about it. So when they suddenly announced WMD is there, I knew that we had bombed the hell out of everything in 91. And there was nothing in any of the reports they issued for 10 years that indicated he rebuilt any of that. He just, he couldn't have. We were watching everything he did. So the whole story didn't make sense to me. And, so you know, you can argue um, that for the for the Wolfowitz's, the bright ones, the bright neocons, who are Straussians, you know, the noble lie, Strauss was a great believer in the noble lie, that the leadership is entitled to tell the masses a noble lie. You can argue that they probably knew all along, and so what? It made no difference to them because the main goal was to get the WMD. But in the short run, it's a hell of a story. They're not telling the truth about something. So
1: that's not so hard. So in, in the case of the uh, bin Laden killing, The story that you, I think, began to look critically at to begin with was the story of how they came to find him in Abbottabad. I learned right away, very early. Well, two things happened.
0: Uh, First, the night of the raid, like everybody else, I was happy. Um, uh, Maybe unlike most people, I did not think this was the end of the war on terror because the idea of a war against an idea always struck me as nutty. And uh, at at that point, we were 10 years into it, and there was no question, Bin uh, Laden—you know, one reason we keep on talking about Bin Laden is there was legislation passed in the fall of 2002. This is the issue Sanders always raises about Hillary. She signed it, which said—it actually said—gave the president authority whenever there's al-Qaeda— to be found without consulting Congress or anybody else he can act. So that's why al-Qaeda is there. What you have a copy, you have serious Sunni jihadists, Sunni Salafists, but allegiance to bin Laden, are you kidding me? He was out of the picture. And this is sort of ad hoc. Um, For 15 years, I don't think he did it. I think that the real story is going to be, we'll never get it maybe, but it's going to be in Hamburg. I think Muhammad Atta, I think, had a degree in mechanical engineering. And he was the only one of the 19 guys, including bin Laden, who had any enough brains to organize stuff. And so, uh, from the beginning, anyway, the point is, after within a day, I can say this now. I didn't want to say it for a long time. I got a call um, uh, from a journalist in Washington. The next day, I think it was maybe a day and a half later, he had called up. He called up Joe Biden, the uh, vice president, and this sort of Irish Catholic boys, you know, network, which exists. Um, and uh, they were just buddies uh, Drink. I don't know if they were drinking. I don't know what. But, um, and he called up to thank him. And Biden called back and said, in essence— uh, I have notes, but I don't, I don't remember them for, verbatim. But his message was, yeah, thanks a lot, pal. Yeah, it's great. Re-election and all that stuff. You, I think you're right. It's, it's wonderful. But let me tell you something. Anybody who thinks this guy, this president, is some community organizer from Chicago, you know, what Obama did between before going to law school and after graduating from the University of Chicago, uh, is just some— uh, you know a, a pussy or some you know let me tell you something he stuck at the gates gate didn't want to go he didn't want to play he drove it up his ass you know that kind of talk guys talk he just stuck it to him i'm going so this guy calls me and he says oh, i don't know hirsch it's not i can't do this but maybe you can he's a, a columnist for a, a paper and he was right you know I, so wow so a day or two later i got a, a email from a somebody in Pakistan who was in a f- ISI family and what 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 I also knew is that and what what maybe most people didn't know about me because they don't read I had done a long story for the New Yorker magazine for which I wrote until I began writing for you guys the London review in 2010 and 11 I wrote a long story about the Pakistani bomb and how we were terrified about it. We didn't. We, we make nice to the two generals who run the country. We make really nice to them. If they want a chopper, we give them a chopper. And that's basically the governing principle in U.S.-Pakistani relations. Totally. Totally. It's the core. They have now a second reactor. They, have long, they had one called Kahuta that was enriched uranium. Now they have a, a plutonium reactor going. We asked them not to do it. And they said, you know, stick it where the sun don't shine. Everybody, you know, that's that's their issue. They don't care what we think about that. That's our national security. It's a matter of great pride for them. The Islamic bomb, you can call it. That's, and then when there used to be a lot of worries about it. And so I had done that story, and I got deep into some of the stuff we were doing. And um, uh, I spent a lot of time in Pakistan deep into how they didn't trust us. And I I, I had some stuff there that was very brutal about the real truth is you know, we're we're terrified that a couple of the, we think we know where the bombs are, and they want us to think that. But we also know the chances of, as somebody once said to me, uh, a, a couple of bombs being out of the count, lying in the tall grass along the runway, very high. So I wrote this story. And, of course, the government, as it always does, denied everything. No, 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 no. And then two days before, David um, um, uh, Remnick, the editor of the magazine, called me to say— that somebody very important high up had called him with great, great concern. We had told him it's the same thing we did at the New York, New York, the London Review. You know, we fact check mm-hmm. and we send emails to the government saying what we're going to say within some reasonable form, pretty close to what not the words, but the idea. They respond to that by saying if we ran the story as, a, as we were said we would, they were going to have to shut the embassy and close consulate and move people out. Because they thought they would be rioting. Because many people in Pakistan, uh, the religious people, the fundamentalists, um, are quite religious, support bin Laden, can't stand America, um, uh, perfectly prepared to march against us, think the bomb is important, uh, but also respect the army as sort of the father of the country, which is what we... That's, what, that's how we play it. We play through the army. Um, um, so... To bring this back to... Well, but let me just... I'll just finish it. The, the point being that um, I did know people clearly on the inside. And this isn't taken into account when people raise questions about it. And then I asked people I know in America. And amazingly enough, within the two days, I was had a meeting and I get the same story, the same, almost verbatim, the same account. It's so close on so many issues. What I was heard from the ISI. So I have a story. And from there you go.
1: To lay out the principles of those stories, a lot of it has to do with The question of, would the U.S. violate Pakistani sovereignty without alerting the Pakistani authorities, right? And also the source of U.S. knowledge of bin Laden's location, to just go through the story as you've written it, as it is in the book. Well, uh, they're a great ally. Yeah. uh, you know, we
0: just had an example. I'm always digressing. We just had an example where the president has announced he's going to send 250 special forces troops in, into Syria. Yeah. Right? Well, no problem there. We can violate that. You know, uh, the only countries that are invited there, the government, Syria is controlled by a government headed by Bashar Assad. We don't like that, but that's the reality. And Russia's there because he was. they were asked to be. Uh, Hezbollah's there. The Iranians are there because they were asked to be. We're not asked to be. But we go in there. We go into uh, Israel without being asked or Canada no or Pakistan no those are all no-nos we would not do anything that agree- there's there's tension because we operate, there's something called the Hindu Kush. The, the border between India, Pakistan, and, and uh, Afghanistan is the mountain range, Hindu Kush. And there's a tenuous, it's no man's land. And there, we have a we could operate maybe six or eight kilometers across the, into the, their country without requests. But after that, we have to ask. And they're very sensitive about it. Believe me, I know that from, from going there. They, they don't like the fact that we sometimes cheat a couple miles. Uh, sending a team in there, um, uh, the whole notion... That we would do that is so counter to anybody who understands the game about the bomb that we would undercut the Pakistani leadership like that and leave them in, as we left it. The way we left it was they had two options. They could say, oh, my, yes, uh, we didn't track the planes and our radar system, which, by the way, um, again, if reporters would to just do the work, Pakistan helped us in the war against the russians in in afghanistan the isi came in when the russians took over in in pakistan i mean in Af- afghanistan the indians in the 80s yes in the 80s there the indians came in. Was. indians set up an embassy and eight consulates so isi comes in on our side again the uh, 70s and 80s for the russians mm-hmm. and the indians in the 80s the pakistan the isi this very powerful intelligence service comes in and what they do of course is they go to some of the indian consulates Destroy them and hang, there's wire service stories about this, hang some of the diplomats, the trees, horrible stuff. A lot of concern about that. India's mad. What does India have in 1982 that Pakistan doesn't have? It has the bomb then. Pakistan's worried about it. They, they, they may have had a reactor, but they didn't weaponize probably until the early 90s. Making a weapon is really hard. The difference between having a capa- capability and actually fabricating a weapon as we, I mean, uh, believe me, in the, it's, it's years of work. You have to build a huge complex. You're dealing with very hot stuff that can kill anybody who gets, you know, if, if there's a leak. And so if you go back and look at radar systems, we built them a radar system, spent over $900 million on it. I learned after doing the article that the phrase for the radar system is 3D audible. It's so good you can't erase any image. So anyway, the idea that we we could fly choppers in, stealth choppers which don't exist, in and not be seen by their radar is comical. But that's the story they told. So we left the Indian, the Pakistani high command, with an option of saying, "Oh my God! Well, we didn't see them, we screwed up." Or. The other option is to say, "Well, we knew he was there, and we helped the Americans kill him, which would lead them their kids couldn't go to school the next day. They would be right. Their house would be surrounded by people saying, "You killers of, of, of our Christ." You know he was a big leader. Uh, Bin Laden, to many of the people, would have been incredibly chaotic for them to do it. So they took and but I can tell you right now, uh, I know it's still a source of great aggravation. Among them, we've tried hard to make it. They don't trust us because of that, and that's what Gates was fighting about that night. He won't say so publicly, and I'm just saying this sort of heuristically. His in his book, he writes a long paragraph about his rage at what happened that night, and what he says is it's because they made the seals public. Oh come on, seals do these raids. That's the, you know they go they go
1: they go on kill missions all the time. He was mad. We've just lost a seal who was working with the. Uh past in um, in Kurdish controlled Syria. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, yes, we uh, that was reported today or yesterday, we, we, right?
0: Yes. Look, um, it's a digression. Yeah. But the number of troops we have inside Iraq, we announced claim three thousand, is more over twenty thousand. We just can do it. Well, we control everything. If you add the if you add the carrier, the troops on it you're in the twenty five thousand, you know, because they're flying missions off the carrier. It's just we just it's just you, you know I could spend my life trying to fight lies, but then I'm not only fighting lies of the government; I'm fighting the newspapers that carry the lies. That once they carry the lies, it's very hard for a major newspaper to back off and say we were mis- we were misled or you know we weren't we weren't informed. It's just like um, the investigation of the uh, of the bombing the bombing of in Afghanistan of the Doctors Without Borders hospital. The army just came out and they they gave the boys reprimands. Mm. Well. I wrote a story in for The New Yorker in nineteen seventy about the reprimand issue. A group of guys coming back from a bad mission were angry in they, Vietnam yeah, in vietnam they were guys in apache pilots they they'd had a big fight, they lost some people, they were mad they were coming back I can understand that, and they were flying over um, in over uh, well, the free, uh, free what they considered to be a free fire zone, and they saw a complex of hutches with two uh, fences around it. And they thought, ah, oh, we got a hot VC area. They peeled off five or six of the, four or five of the choppers, and they blew the hell out of it. It was a special secure quarter facilities for the wives and children of South Vietnamese generals. So we had to investigate it. And so, my God, how do we get around it? Well, we're not going to call it murder, as they did in this case. We're going to call it a violation of rules. That's the first thing they did. This was a violation of rules, th- That what happened with the doctors without borders. The whole way they treated it, nothing more than that. No mens rea. It's just, oh, my God, they didn't follow the rules. And so uh, there'll be a letter of reprimand. Well, in the story I wrote in 1970, uh, the letter of reprimand included this coda. Uh, if there's no further adverse reporting on your actions while on the, in this tour, this letter will be removed from your file when you leave the country. I actually wrote the, um, Eugene Fidel, the lawyer for, for the, uh, who's been involved in lawyering for the, for the uh, Doctors Without Borders in some way. I wrote him an email and I told him to ask for the reprimand. Get an unredacted copy. I, I can't imagine they've changed the game. You know, they're you know, doing everything to minimize it. And so uh, this is, again, uh, here I am thinking differently than everybody else about it. Mm. But I'm not thinking differently in the, oh, my God, it's an outrage. I'm thinking more very specifically For me, the issue of the Doctors Without Borders is the premise that this is a violation of rules, because when you treat crimes that way, you minimize them. And that, to me, is the outrage. So I have my outrage, but it's more complicated than I think the newspaper outrage or even the Doctors Without Borders. You know, it's it's not that they— it's the process. The system
1: that, is is set up to allow exactly, these things to go on happening.
0: That's what the issue is. You can fight all you want about what should happen that day. It was horrible and horrible. And you know they went back and back and fired. I mean it's it's, uh, I I don't know enough. All I know is that it, it, it there was a certain amount of mens re involved. They're just it's just in, at a certain point they were just killing. Mm -hmm. and whether they it doesn't matter if they were wrong about the target the intent was to kill and I'm not a lawyer I can't even argue that but that's the way I look at it so in this case I learned right away that the whole story about couriers Mm -hmm. and anybody who's seen Zero Dark Thirty knows the reason they pushed hard for the courier story on the inside which Gates objected to this I do know bitterly was a lot of people in the CIA were very worried about what they'd done in torture and if you remember the movie, in the, in the movie, they tortured somebody to get the name, the courier, to get the name of the courier that led him to bin Laden. It's all a lie. But the whole structure for that had a significant reason. It was to publicly tell the American people, it's really okay to waterboard sometimes. Look what we got. What happened is there was a walk-in. And the people, and how the agency works is so interesting. There's something in the agency that you can call it. The newspapers sometimes in a story calls it eyewash. It's when you do something and you have to protect the source, you let other people in the agency think that, that they were responsible for certain actions. So you've got people down in the bowels, intelligence people in the, in the intelligence uh, office, an analyst, analytical office of the, of the CIA, writing, looking at couriers, trying to figure out. And they've been doing it for years without much luck. But you now tell them, you did it, guys. And then they can be taken out to reporters and be very credible because they are credible. They think they did it. The cover story
1: extends to the to the government agency
0: itself. Well, of course. Yeah. I asked a friend of mine. There was a piece in The Washington Post about six months ago about this IWASH thing. And the agency acknowledged to the Senate Intelligence Committee there are times when they lie to the staff. And it's called eyewash. And I asked one of my friends who knows a great deal about this, who served at a very high level there for many years and constantly is inside the community. I said, do you know what I He said, "Oh yes." He said, "There's another word for it we use actually in the agency," and I said, "What's that?" He said, "Lying." <laughs> of course you lie to people, and it's again a noble lie. You're lying because the little the little people in the intelligence division who are looking at, uh, you know, trying to figure out names, the Arabic names, and trying to find out what a courier who's a courier, who's not a courier, they um, that's they have a victory. You give them a victory, then they're credible. And uh, in the in the piece that. Um, 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 that we worked on for so long together, you and I, the Bin Laden story, there was a section about uh, the Senate Intelligence Committee put out a 6,000-page report on terror. Mm. 5,500 pages were de- redacted. Oh, on torture, you mean? On torture, What's I beg right pardon, place? on torture. See, you are my editor. Mm. And so, um, and in the report, uh, a long section on couriers was left because it I think they didn't realize, I don't know why they didn't connect it. And the report that they, the Senate said, nobody could make heads or sense of the couriers. You couldn't track the names. And anyway, the notion that bin Laden was operating, I mean, there was no Internet there. They told us in the very beginning. And so what they do with a story like this, because I will tell you that the notion that that the Pakistanis didn't know is getting pretty dominant. I was just in London talking about this book for a week and there was no... I was in a big debate with... Not a debate, a conversation with a very high-ranking... The number two editor of the London Guardian... Um, and this is you know, a royal colony, mm. and, and many journalists in, uh, in, 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 in London, in the UK, have gone many more times than Americans to India and Pakistan. There's a lot more familiarity with it. Europe is Europe, and mm. they're closer. I asked him in the middle of—we were doing a colloquy at, at, uh, before a, a crowd of people, and I said—his name was Paul Johnson, a very decent guy. And I said, Paul, just for the hell of it, what did you guys think? You've got a lot of foreign correspondents. The Guardian's good liberal, you know, wonderful newspaper. He said, "Well, we talked about it quite a bit and concluded that, of course, the Pakistanis had to no. know." I mean, the next question I, I could have asked was, "Why did you then proceed to proceed from there to do a story?" But that's a big jump. That's a commitment of people
1: and resources that they may not have because this is a diminishing time of money. How has um, the business and the relationship between the press corps and the U.S. federal government, the Pentagon, the military changed over the course of your career. Oh, it's m- much more, much more
0: intimate. It's much more involved. Uh, I think one of the things they did, if you remember, um, in 1991, when uh, Bush won the first president attacked uh, uh, attacked Pakistan, uh, uh, Baghdad, yeah. uh, they embedded journalists, and I've talked to. They embedded it with army units, and here's the thing. Um, um, uh our our kids like all kids are are nice and funny our soldiers they're nice kids and i've talked to journalists who were embedded let's say with the marine unit and on the third day of the war they were driving somewhere and they were coming from they were driving from Kuwait to Baghdad there wasn't much contact but they were worried there was a sniper here and there there wasn't very much there was really no war there uh obviously uh, the the um, the, the bath party believers and the stalwarts they all retreated to fight another day, to fight the war of attrition that did, that did begin. And um, I know guys who told me that they saw—our guys would get jittery. They'd heard about a, 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 somebody got hurt with a sniper and they'd be driving along and there'd be a car on the highway next to them and and uh, at an intersection. And they would, the banks would be at the intersection. They'd try and wave the car that's rolling along parallel to them to stop. They didn't want them to get parallel with them. And they'd scream in English, stop, stop. And everybody's, well, who are these guys? And they opened up. And he said it was the second or third day. They opened up and killed you know, a bunch of babies and kids. And everybody was upset. He didn't file it. Mm. He didn't file it. Because mm. he was embedded. He's embedded, and they're nice kids. Yeah. They're all going to get charged with murder or whatever it is, or dereliction of duty, or failing to observe the rules and regulations, whatever it is, and get a letter in their file. But, you know, that's—and so that was the, this, the willingness of the press, you know, particularly the anchors. All the anchors went, you know, and they all wrote—they all covered it. You know, being an anchor is like being a movie star. You have to be—you know, you have to Who be— Who was
1: the scud stud? stud? Back then, oh god, remember that? Oh got it, it became a kind of celebrity movie. Right, right, yeah. right, absolutely. A it, careerist celebrity. Right. Well, remember status
0: Brian simply. Williams in yeah. the in the in the in the two thousand and three war, the Anchorman for NBC, mm.
1: just lied about what he did. Right, and that's how that's taken him down, and not he's sent him from the night, NBC Nightly News to MSNBC um, to turn it around in another way. Um, You've said that it, when it comes to U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East and and also um, in Eastern Europe, the Obama administration and much of the, for lack of a better term, establishment is, or as parts of them are still caught up in a Cold War mentality. Some of your reporting on Syria has, has asserted this. Um, why do you think that is, and how pervasive is it, and is there any hope that we'll perhaps age out of it. I would have thought we would. The, the the smart guys I know on the inside,
0: you know, again, for me, the distinction is there are people on the inside when they take the oath of office, as everybody does, um, really believe it, that they're taking the oath of loyalty to the Constitution and not to the president. What you have is uh, all time and time again, it quickly it morphs into our, our duty is to the president. So um, I The first move people now believe after nine eleven, the first stop should have been to Moscow, because um, they had two wars with the Chechens, who are um, and many of them they still proliferate. In, for example, El baghdadi who runs ISIS, he surrounded his operational corps. They include Sunnis from who were in the Ba'ath Party from Iraq, but they include a lot of people who fought in Chesna. The second war Russia had was 10 years. Remember how brutal it was on both sides? Horrible. But they all thought, this is a guy that probably had a lot to tell us. He is sharing intelligence with us on ISIS. He's, if we do any targeting at all, it's largely because of the people he has inside. I hope I'm, I'm okay saying that. Um, but— um, and so the military guys see it a little differently. Um, they're less worried about the Cold War, you know, aspect. But politically, it's suicide. In America, um, um, uh, you mentioned word. you could attack—any day you attack Putin, why, well, you get two points in popularity. Same with the Bashar Assad. You know, I'm always amazed. Bashar Assad is—he's um, in a war of life and death— Um, If he loses the war to ISIS or al-Nusra, he and his wife, his pretty wife, and his two pretty children will be swinging in a yard like Mussolini with their throats cut. He knows that. That's the end game for him. And so uh, he does what people do when they're in a desperate war. Um, I'm always amazed that he's criticized so much for using barrel bombs, which are what you ship oil in, 63-gallon, because I know a country— that was in a war that wasn't life and death in terms of immediate peril to the leadership in America uh, that used barrel bombs for seven years full of napalm and cacodylic acid. It was called the United States of America in the war against South Vietnam. For seven years, we do barrel bombs. Why? They're cheaper. And not only that, so I always wondered, and they have much less. They have 63 kilograms, uh, you know, 120-some of explosive, as opposed to a 500-pound bomb full of 500 or 500... It's, it's a bigger bomb. The bomb, much more bang. I always wondered... It would have been better when I hear about another barrel bomb attack if he used five hundred pounders, which would kill many more people. I just, I just, I just see that as so. You know, I just, I just am amused—not amused, amused disturbed—and we are also a country that dropped the second bomb uh, on Nagasaki. You know, what a couple hundred thousand people just to demonstrate that we had one. We could do it. No military purpose at all. Everybody knew. I, I, I'd make the same. Garapowitz has written about this for years. The American scholar, about you know, Cold War being a factor in that. It's you know, and and um, it's certainly a, a very relevant argument. A lot of people don't accept that either. But I always wonder why um, uh, we are so quick uh, uh, when we don't like somebody. Uh, we're really we're really very rough and. Um, Uh, Just as I said, um, the president of the United States can get brownie points from putting 250 special ops guys across the border into Syria without permission. And you know what it's about? Um, My heuristic thought. The battle for Palmyra turned out to be, nobody, again, reading and not writing. There was a lot of stuff written in the international press about this battle. It was door-to-door in Palmyra. ISIS just stood there and fought. They had no choice. They were gonna go nowhere. Syrians did a great job and I guess you could say, because they went and they killed a lot of people. They also suffered a lot of losses. The Russians had to put in a spechnas. There's their equivalent of our Joint Special Operations Command. There were foothills or mountains above Palmyra where they got into wild fighting with with uh, ISIS. And a lot of the Russian uh, commandos got killed. It was a bloodbath on all sides and a very decisive victory. and so their Russian commandos were sort of a new element turning the battle. So the president puts in 250. It sort of has to say, you know, I can, you know, uh, mine is as big as yours. I'm going to Mm. put them in. And and the immediate thought, the smart people I know had, is he's not going to put them in because the only way he can resupply them is by air. And Russia controls the air. Russia has these huge radars they've installed, wonderful radars, S-400s, I think, that are very, they can just reach all over. And so Russia, theoretically... An American airplane coming to resupply somebody because we're not welcome there. The the Syrians aren't happy about us being there. Could shoot it down. And so my friends, a lot of my friends said to me, there must be a back-channel deal with Russia. There isn't. Obama just knows he's going to send his planes and the Russians will not shoot it down. It's sort of gamesmanship. Mm -hmm. But it's gamesmanship that you wonder to what end? You know, uh, I Obama's, he spent 28 minutes at the White House Correspondents' Dinner last night telling sometimes lame jokes, his farewell. Mm -hmm. And then he showed a video he had done that was also lame. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, he really protects his relationship with the press. He's never missed the White House Correspondents' Dinner. He's never deigned not to go. He really values it. This is him saying, I'm with you guys, despite the fact I may put a lot of you in jail and put pressure on. He's He's... He's laying down a marker, obeisance. He's saying, you're the king. I'm coming here and playing for you.
1: Well, he has, in one sense, a very cozy re- relationship with a lot of many sectors of the press, certainly the opinion pages. Um, he's constantly having centrists, columnists over <laughs> over to dinner at the White House, David Brooks and such. But you know, in, there was a. But on the other hand, he has one of the one of the worst records for prosecuting journalists. You wouldn't know it among mm. the you know the, the awe and and you know the the, the re,
0: genu, genuflecting they did. You know, I, I'm one of the. I, I, uh, am I crazy? I would I would do anything not to go to one of those dinners. Uh, the only time I ever went is I won a prize. And poor Richard Nixon had to give me a prize. I mean it was like it was like freeze how did that go? not very well <laughs> It's not very well because he was like it was you know did you he,
1: shake hands
0: I don't remember. I'm sure I would have you, know, you would not do that mm-hmm. that would be you know that uh, you do you can do it I could do it. I could do it in writing. I don't have to do it in, in a punk way, but um um. No, I would never disrespect the president in public. I mean, he is a president. Um, but I sure disrespect him in terms of policy and other things. And I think Obama, here's the tragedy for me. My guess is he's probably going to be the, you know, my, I have a son who's very smart, too. Uh, very smart, much more than anybody else in the family. He's always saying, you don't understand. He's going to be the brightest president we've had. We're going to have him 50 years. He is very bright. He's, he's edgy, much more edgy than people think. He's somebody you don't go to with bad news. Uh, uh, example his, his great piece of, of jurisdiction was um, was Obamacare and everybody in the staff knew the computers wouldn't work and nobody told them he's an interesting guy he's very as I say um, I know I'd, I'd you know go have dinner with the guy any day in the week you know I'm sure he's he's very smart he's very well read but he's fallen into a trap
1: of using force you know it just, he he hasn't used as much force as he could have no though. he didn't he went into Libya—or he bombed Libya but didn't go into Syria in— um No. He stayed out of Syria. That's why the 250 makes no
0: sense. Except this, this is so Putin. We can do it. And you're not going to shoot them. We know you're not going to shoot them. What does Putin want? Mm-hmm. Putin, the same thing the Iranians want. They want to be respected. You know, that. what's it about? Um, Hillary Clinton keeps on talking about, uh, in terms of the, uh, the Iranian nuclear deal, that it happened because she put sanctions on it. The only way that deal went down was the day after 10 years of Bush, Cheney, and Obama. We finally said about a year ago to the Iranians, you can keep on enriching. For, for, we finally said, what well, the position had been from George Bush on. We want to talk about uh, stopping enrichment and stopping not, not going. And the way we're going to do it is first you have to stop enrichment, then we'll talk about it. You can't—you know, that's—it never was a bargain. Once we said, let's find a way for you to enrich—they're enriching right now for commercial use, 3.7 percent, way short of 95 they need for a bomb, under uh, IAEA cameras. So my own take on it, the Iranians got away with the deal of the century. They gave up something they didn't have uh, for an end end to sanctions. And now what do we do? There's $150 billion on the table, and then we start screwing around with the sanctions. We say, well, they're not going to get it yet— We've given them $3 billion so far. And so they may end up walking away from the deal, which is going to be horrible because we can't stop playing politics with this stuff. And Kerry's was the one who was bragging about they only have $3 billion out of it. I don't understand our policy. We can really do so much more if we, uh, you know, we're such a great country, we really are. Uh, hey, uh, my parents are immigrants, Eastern European, uneducated. Um, I the I got, only way I learned anything is when I was 12 or 13 I ran across the book of the month club 99 cents they'd give me one non-fiction book a, a month and I used to get a dollar uh, maybe, I delivered papers I'd pay a dollar a dollar 99 cents a month and I'd get these tomes sometimes they were anti-communist crap but a lot of times there were histories of the Habsburg histories of sometimes even the Russian Revolution I read a lot of stuff from 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 um, I was not uh, I got a scholarship to college, University um, uh, you know, of Chicago. I didn't pay tuition. Uh, I think I paid a minimal fee, but um, we're talking about $100 or a quarter or something like that. I was not editor of the Harvard Review. Uh, uh, Harvard, what's it called? The Harvard, Harvard Law Review? Oh, no, no, Harvard, um, the, the Crimson, the Daily Crimson, oh, the Crimson or the yeah. Yale Daily News. Yeah, sure. I graduated. I didn't, I wasn't even editor. I didn't work on my college newspaper. You didn't work on the college newspaper? No, I, no, I, right. I never thought of So you went true. to law school. And went then to law school How did you
1: end up as a reporter then?
0: Uh, I flunked out of law school. Mm-hmm. And why do you ask me this question? Um, I, you would seem like that's where you were heading. Um, no, I was going to say this, that 11 years after graduating from college, I'm st- I write My yeah. I'm writing about a massacre. I'm sticking two fingers in the eye of a Republican president who ran on a platform that he had a secret plan to end the war, which turned out to be to win it. We didn't know that. I'm sticking two eyes in his eye. And I know— that in what a hundred countries, nations of the world, I'd be in real trouble doing it. Instead, I'm fame, fortune, glory. I got more money than I'd ever seen. Something I started, like, ended up with about six, seven thousand dollars in cash, which I had no money. I was married with two little kids. We we make between the two of us, we made. I was working for the AP for one eighteen. My wife was a social worker. We had two little kids. We rented a house. All of a sudden, i got prizes. I got a bunch of prizes, not just Pulitzer. I got four or five other big prizes. and Invited to give speeches. A Pull it, the Pulitzer Prize, too, which was $1,000 then. And so, I, you're going to think, I'm going to complain about this country. It's a spectacular in place. In Turkey, things would be... In Turkey, are you kidding? I wouldn't have gotten... But, you know what happened to me in law school? I flunked out. And I hung around. I, I was just doing what 22 or 23-year-old kids. I was trying to figure out which part of my body moved where. I was so lost in space. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, drinking and playing around. And... Um, I had a, I'm telling the story, I had a wonderful girlfriend and at a party in, at the University of Chicago, I, I drank too much, and some guy, we call it bird-dogging, I talked about this earlier today, bird-dogging was the phrase pick, hitting on a guy's girlfriend when mm. he was sort of, you know, he was gone. I've for seen it happen, yeah. Well, I don't—did you call it bird-dogging? We called it back then. Our, people don't know that word now. Anyway, nothing—it was okay. And a couple—about a month later, we ran into this guy. His name was Peter Lacey. He ended up working for Time magazine. And Peter—we all were friendly talking about it, laughing about it. Um, I was, you know, I, I I think I was laughing a little bit. I didn't like it. But anyway— he works working at a newspaper agency called City News Bureau, which had been set up by the Chicago, the Chicago newspapers and the and the radio stations and the wire services said there's so much crime in this goddamn city. Let's pool our money, set up an agency. It was um, famous made famous by a, a play by Ben Heck called Front Page. Mm-hmm. We cover the crime. We cover all we do is cover crime and the courts and it's uh, and fires. That was the group. And so I and Lacey said they hired graduate they hired two people. Graduates from the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern, they come in, they get half the jobs, and the other half are just people who walk off the street. And the only requirement for going in there is you can walk straight you had a BA. So I went and I applied. Months later, I was randomly, uh, I pick up a phone somewhere and there's this guy, editor, Ryberg, calling me months later saying, Hirsch. I said, yeah, I was in, I had moved out of the apartment, but I was there visiting a friend. I slept there overnight. I think we played cards And drank, you know, what kids do. Sure. And so in the morning when I woke up, the phone's ringing. I pick it up. And he says, Ryberg, he says, come down today. Your your name is up. So I go there and I get get a job, 35 bucks a week. I later watched as I went to look for a replacement. They would start from the pile. And if you didn't answer, he put your name at the bottom of the pile. That's how I got into journalism. I always wanted to be, you know, are you kidding me?
1: But, you know, it was a fit. I liked it. Flash forward 50 years. uh, We have an election going on. What do you think of the prospects for? We're down. It's so it seems to Clinton and Trump, uh, and how they'll compare to this administration, the Obama administration. Well, I, I, the real answer, you know, what, how in the hell do I know? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it
0: doesn't matter what I think. I have my own secret wish for the world. When you talk to you, mentioned MSNBC and CNN and all these these shows in which they put people on journalists come in. And uh, journalists and politicians come in and they have these panels. My secret wish is we'd get rid of this word, this phrase, I think. Mm -hmm. If you got rid of the word I think, nobody could say anything. So it doesn't really matter what I think. The one thing I know, I worked in the McCarthy campaign because I I came back from Vietnam. I I covered the Vietnam War. I was mostly in the Pentagon, but I was over there. And I came back convinced um, after two years. I got in trouble with the AP because I was edgy about the war. And so they wanted to reassign me to another beat, and I, so I left. And uh, I knew the war was mass murder. I just knew it. I, I, I talked to officers and guys who did it. You know, I'm, I'm covering. They're all. They're on, it's all about the war. And guys are honest about it. They couldn't stand what they were doing, but they were doing it. You had to get body counts to get promoted. You had to, more than if if there's ten lieutenant colonels looking for one colonel's job, the guy who has the most kills is going to has a better shot. So they were killing willy nilly. And so I couldn't do anything about it. I didn't think the newspaper business would be good enough. So a neighbor, Mary McGrory, who was a columnist, told me that Eugene McCarthy was going to run. And I joined him. He was a Benedictine, very interesting. Uh, he went to Mass every day, and I wasn't allowed to say he really believed in church state. He was very bright. He was, he was a, a lover of poetry. I can't tell how many times I went out and of poetry. George Sepharis, the Greek poet, was one of his favorites. He could quote almost anything. And we had people like Robert Lowell in the campaign working in my office delivering stuff for me. Buying me coffee, Bravo Lowell, I'm not kidding you. For three months, Cal, he was yeah. great. By the way, this was before his, he had breakdowns,
1: but he was so he had some before this. Yeah, but
0: yeah. he would sit in the stands with me and the kids in the campaign, and the last thing he wanted was these bright, beautiful girls coming up from Radcliffe wanting to talk poetry. He just wanted to talk about things. He was very nice, and we'd be. I, he, He'd gone to jail as a conscientious. Yeah, that's right. Objector. You got him. He cared yeah. a lot. Anyway, the point of all this is that McCarthy one day in the University of Wisconsin, you could get 5,000 people there to rally about anything. It's just the most active campus. And he was asked a question about the war very early, and he said something that just, I knew then we were gonna be okay. I really did. He said, well, here's the problem with this war, Vietnam, it's immoral. And we don't ever talk about morality. We walk out of Iraq after 11 years of destroying the country, and we think the fact that we got out is fine, we don't, we don't have an obligation to those people there. We wonder why. And the press doesn't even make a connection. Joe Biden visits one day, and Mctada Sadr has his people go and run into the green zone the next day. They don't make a connection between Joe Biden maybe being there that day. You know, you can move, believe me, Mctada the leader of, the, of you know, that Shia group, he can move the Bada group. He can move people in social media. You can do it in, in three hours. You can get them going. I mean, I would make that connection, but it wasn't made at all. You know, America is pretty much hated um, around the world right now. And we don't see it. We just don't
1: get it. Don't know if that's the best note to end on, but... Well, I can rephrase it. <laughs> no. America is really loved by everybody. <laughs>
0: I think it's true that we are really disliked much yeah. more than we want to believe. And that's sad because we're, we're a much better country than, than, than people think we are. Mm. We are. We just do much too much violence.